Crime Curious is a true crime podcast that takes an in-depth look into real cases. The content may be triggering or inappropriate for some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Crime Curious. I'm Charnel. And I'm Amber. I just realized that we did not have a theme this week. Your case that you did was eerie as hell. So, yeah. Oh, God, sorry. <laughs> she almost spilled an entire Yeti cup. Of- but on uh, recording, I'm sure that sounded like I just... <laughs> there was an O-face involved. Yeah. Yep. 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 And I apologize for okay. that. Oh, that was... Uh, she was tipping. She was. Thank you not for not too, ruining our handed I'm going to do a two-handed grip now. You have you're under the toddler rules. Yes. <laughs> Two hands on that cup. And it's coffee. It's coffee, I promise. We're not even drinking. No, no. Just water and coffee today. All right. So yeah, our theme is no theme. Yeah, we didn't have a theme. We, we just kinda we just jumped right in this week. But I was sent this case from actually I went to high school with this gal. She's an avid listener. Her name's Ashley. And she happened to send me the offender list like for this is a Michigan case and so she had pulled up and I think she saw it in a news article something like that but she just sent me like a screenshot of his offender this dude's offender profile oh and she was like oh my gosh this is just this was very close to us this is a Battle Creek Michigan case and I had never heard of him before and then as I was diving in it was really kind of crazy because there's more people involved than I realized. And just let, let me All get to right. it. I am another Michigan case. Another Michigan case. Yes. By by accident, really. wasn't looking for one. It's just I started, I kind of did a to little me a lot. Googling and all of a sudden got pulled into this and was like, oh my gosh. Michigan finds me often. Like, yes. I don't find Michigan. It's just like, here's another case for right. you. And here's an here's another reason why your state sucks. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. We have a really beautiful state, we actually. Do. Gorgeous. But there are a lot of shitheads here, it turns out. <laughs> what initially started for me was a look into a man named Brent Coster. And I find out that Brent did not act alone. He acted with another man named Danny Rains. And so I'm going to start by telling you about Danny first because now Brent was actually the person who our listener sent me the uh, offender screenshot of. But Danny is actually the one that made Brent an offender. Oh. Like pulled him into the life of crime. Okay, gotcha. So we're going to start talking about Danny. And I just want you to know there are... uh, There are... There are exactly like four articles on this entire thing because it it happened in the 70s, but also small town Michigan. It's not like this was covered by national news or anything like that. But I was able to, to really dive into some people that were um, able to profile these two a little bit more. And I, I pulled up with some good info. So to start talking about Danny Rains, I'm going to let you know that he was one of four children. Unfortunately, he was born to an alcoholic father, and his father did work at a gas station. He was a gas station attendant, and he kind of got tired of uh, the life with four kids and a wife, so he just abandoned the family. Oh, that's the worst. And Danny was 10 years old when this happened, and he abandoned the family to go live with another woman in Florida. Yeah. That easy, huh? Yep, just like that. So... Danny has an older sister, a younger brother, and then a younger sister as well. When Danny was a child and his dad was around, so this is 10 years old and younger, Danny, his dad would make him and his brother Larry physically fight each other over everything. Oh my gosh. It was, I'm sure in his warped mind, he thought that he was teaching them to, you know, win every fight and that's actually what he said was he wanted his boys to always be winners so if you and your brother wanted something you both wanted something you were gonna fight for it which is disgusting physically fight that's horrible physically fight one another at this young of age so 
And and the other thing is when he when the kids got into a fight at school, their dad taught them you make it physical and you win. This oh, is like oh, so he was programmed to fight. Yes, yes, for everything, everything to use that violence. Is so morbid. He was programmed to use violence to get what everything. he wanted. Yeah, which is gross. It that is so gross. Now in high school, Danny dated a girl named Paula. And Paula, I guess, could not make up her mind between Danny and Larry because she also had eyes for for Larry, who, again, he was taught to fight for everything in when they were younger, his younger brother, Larry. So Paula's going back and forth in high school between Danny and Larry. After high school, Danny did end up marrying Paula, and they had two children. But she was still hooked on Larry and she would write Larry. The reason she had to write him and not call him is because I'm going to tell you, his brother Larry is a serial killer. Oh. Yes, and Larry changed his name when he went to prison in the 60s to Monk Steppenwolf. <laughs> and after no. I read that name, I was like, add it to the list, Charnel. You got to cover him too. Yeah, that's, I demand that you cover Yes. <laughs> I have to, I want to tell you about Monk, Monk Steppenwolf, and but that's going to be on another episode. I, I will I will look forward to that and suddenly I feel like my name is not exciting enough in life. It's definitely like I not. I need to step it up. For sure. Cuz if you can pick any name in the world from Larry Rains, you go to Monk Steppenwolf. Heck yes, you do. Nice job. I I am impressed with that piece. But I want to point out so Monk becomes a serial killer and that's what he gets set in prison for danny becomes a serial killer as well so i guess if you take anything at all from our podcast please let it be that you should not have both of your children physically fight one another during their formidable younger early childhood years. years please for the love of god no because what ends up happening is you create two fucking serial killers yeah yep that's a no no please don't do that so if you you're currently doing that Cease all operations and get a new parenting tactic. Yes. Um, we both have wonderful parenting interventions. We do. Um, Reach out to us. Yeah. We will help you. Very healthy parenting skills. Call us. Exactly. Message us. Not that any of our amazing listeners would do that. Of course not. <laughs> but but I did find that re- when I came across that piece of information, I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. That's awful. It's all making sense. sense. When you get into the debate of nature versus nurture, man, you can't tell me when you've got two serial killer sons that you made fight each other from a young age. What kind of parents like, hmm. This is reasonable. That's we're, They're going to fight it out. Mm-hmm. Be violent for what you want. So Paula was writing Larry, a.k.a. Monk Steppenwolf, in prison when she was married to Danny. Which also, just going between brothers, ick. I'm cringing over yeah. that a little bit. Yeah. Sorry sorry about you if you've ever done that before, but I that that physically makes me uncomfortable. Danny eventually did find out about the letters between Larry Monk Steppenwolf and Paula and the two of them so Paula and Danny become you know start fighting really really regularly and Danny decides you know what I don't need I don't need this noise he divorces Paula he leaves Michigan and he moves to Wyoming now he does come back to Michigan unfortunately when he moved back he did try to have it out again with Paula And they did have a third child, but it still didn't work, if you can imagine. Uh, The child didn't fix things? Very good, yes. I don't believe you. No, (laughs) having another baby when you're having troubles did not fix Paula and Danny. And so they were divorced a second time. Oh, wow. Yes. During his time in high school... Danny and Larry both actually found their father who had abandoned them when they were young. And he kicked them out and said, get out of here. I never want to see you again. Oh, my God. So there's all that. All right. And when Danny was in Wyoming, when he, when he divorced Paula the first time, went to Wyoming, he started raping women 
And he went to prison, did some prison time out in Wyoming for rape. Then came back when he got out, came back to Michigan, reconnected with Paula, had the third child. That just reminds me again of like, if you want something, you take it violently. Exactly. A hundred and ten percent. And you never know, some of those women actually might have been willing to have a relationship with him, but I just don't think that he ev- that, that no even how. dawned on him. Yeah. That it I was agree. just, I have to use, vi- I have to force this. I'm going to take you to March 19th, 1972, when 28-year-old Patricia Hulk left home with her 17-month-old son, Corey, to do some shopping. Now, Danny is back in Michigan. He is, at this point in time, divorced from Paula again for the second time, but he's, he's still living in Michigan. He was 29 years old at this point in time, and he saw Patricia go into a store. They went into Topps Department Store, as a matter of fact. And so Danny parks his blue Corvair van next to her car, and he waits. Now, my husband was born in the 70s, and so I actually he was born in 72 when this case happened. And I was like, is Corvair like like a vehicle? Right? He's like, what is that? He's like, actually, I think my mom and aunt had a Corvair. Okay, so it, oh, wow. it was a, a popular thing. thing. It All was right. a thing. You did just, you flashed me the, the look, like, hold your shit together. So I know this is... Yeah, it's yeah. Coming. You should. Everyone should just hold their shit. Yeah, you l- looked at me like hold, hold yourself together. Hold, hold it in. Yep. Okay, I will. An hour went by, and Patricia came out, put her son into the passenger seat, not in a car seat because you know seventies shit. It's, we rode in the back of uh, the, the station wagon yes. when we were kids. Yep, no seat belts. Yep, I loved it. It was great. Oh my mm-hmm. gosh, it was so much fun. As she came around to the driver's seat where the van was parked. Danny got out, walked up to her, and pulled out a knife. Of course, Patricia panics, and she actually fell into the car. Like, she had already opened the door. She fell into the car, but he pulled her out of the car and forced her to get into his van, where, and this is trigger warning, please, where he bounds her, he rapes her, and he left her bound with her hands in front as he forced her to the front of the van. He tried to strangle her, but she actually fought really, really hard, and her hands were bound in front of her, so she was able to really scratch his face. Oh, good for her. And really get at his face. So they struggle so hard that they fell out of the van and onto the ground. That's how hard she was fighting for her life. Danny then stabs her in the back, but in an interview later, he actually says, quote, it didn't seem to have much effect. She is just, she is badass. She gets Heck stabbed yeah. in the freaking back and it still doesn't stop her. She's from, amazing. And she knows she's got her 17-month-old son in her own vehicle. You know, she's fighting. So then he decides when he realizes that stabbing her is not having the effect that he wants, he starts twisting the knife to do more damage. Now, is this in the This is in lot? the parking oh lot of Topps Department Store. Broad daylight. This is not evening. Mm -mm. Obviously, after several attempts of stabbing and then twisting the knife, she does succumb to her injuries, even though she fought so hard for her life. At this point in time, her 17-month-old son had gotten out of the car and was standing near the van crying. No. He does not kill the son. It's still so, so, it just hurts me so much. Danny figured that the boy wouldn't recall anything because he was so young. So he just left him there and he took Patricia's body with him in the van. The next day, an elderly woman found him wandering around and called the police. Oh my gosh. And sadly, the little boy had, his name was Corey, had blood on him. So they searched for his mom knowing like something is somewhere you know, this little boy's just aimlessly wandering around a parking lot and like the streets. How while the horrible. police I know. While the police are doing their search, they do find Patricia's body behind the independent elevator company building on Peastock Road in Kalamazoo. At this point in time, Patricia's husband had reported her missing. Her wallet was missing in her wedding ring, so they're chalking this up as initially Robbery is positive uh, possible motive here. There was not more information. 
as to whether or not they could tell that she had been sexually assaulted or not. I just know that in the beginning, they're like, okay, this looks like a robbery. Right, right. Yeah, he won't remember any mm-hmm. of that. Nope, nope. But 17 months old, he's not going to remember any of that, so I'm just going to leave him here. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. How horribly scary for that little boy. I know. Just wandering around. Yep. And honestly, I pray that he doesn't remember it. Uh, because at this point in time, he would be 50 years old. Right. So right. hopefully he doesn't remember a thing. Although he knows he grew up without he a know. mother. Right. At this point in time, I'm going to introduce you to 15-year-old Brent Eugene Coster. Brent grew up in the Kalamazoo area of Michigan. He also had a dysfunctional family. His mother suffered from paranoid schizophrenia, and she would often act out in ways that were really embarrassing to him and the family. And unfortunately, his father was also an alcoholic. They moved around a lot, which created an environment where Brent was jumping from school to school, neighborhood to neighborhood. And in his words, he said that he had a, quote, tremendous need to be accepted. So when he was 15, this is June 1972, Patricia was murdered in March 1972. So in June 1972, Brent ran away from home. He had had enough. And at this point in time, he had been in trouble prior to be to 15 for like things like property theft and he did some stints in juvie but he didn't get any real like help or services mm-hmm. it was just yeah you do your time in juvie and you're out some of the property theft could have even been for survival than you know anything um he was raised in a very poverty stricken areas when he ran away he stayed with a friend and that friend, mom, was dating Danny Rains. Uh, I see. So this is how Danny and Brent get to know get each together. other. Okay. But Danny is 29 years old and Brent is 15. They lived in a trailer park off of Sprinkle Road in Kalamazoo. Oh, gosh, I know that road. I know. When the relationship ended between the friend's mom and Danny, Danny jumped right in to move in with another woman. Of course, but Brent decided to go with him because Brent looked up to Danny. He taught Dan, you know, or, you know, Brent thought that Danny was really smart. Danny also worked at a gas station as an attendant, like his dad did, and he'd let Brent help out. Danny bragged about all the adventures he'd been on, you know, in Wyoming and in life at his 29 years of experience, you know. He bragged about women and all of his experience with women. Everything that a 15-year-old boy wants to hear. I was going to say, I'm sure at 15 that sounded really cool. Yes, absolutely. Then one night, Danny tells Brent all about going to prison for raping a woman in Wyoming. And he said that he let her go when she said that she wouldn't say anything. She wouldn't tell anybody about it. Danny told Brent that will never happen again. Now, Brent did, like, do his research to kind of figure out if this guy is bullshitting or not. Everything that Brent had told him about the incident in Wyoming was confirmed by newspapers. Oh, so he did. So he's like. It checked out. Yeah. He's like, okay, yeah, I guess he really is into this. He didn't really know what to think about it, but he was like, all right, this guy's legit at 15, probably thinking he's a badass. He had survived prison. Unfortunately, yeah. And having no. Solid role models to begin with. Exactly. And this man is making him feel included. Right. And accepted. And Danny didn't care where Brent had come from. So I'm sure that felt very nice for him. Not making excuses, but I'm just saying at two, as a 15-year-old. Yep, yep. It tracks. Danny told Brent that if the opportunity presented itself together, they could abduct Rape and kill a woman. That was just in June 1972. About 1 a.m. on July 6th, 1972, Claudia Bidstrup and Linda Clark, they actually were from Chicago. They pulled into the gas station on Sprinkle Road near I-94 in Kalamazoo where Danny worked and Brent got to help out. So Brent was pumping their gas for them. Danny popped the hood, which back in the day, Gas station attendants would pop the hood and check your oil. Which would be nice. For sure. Can we bring that back? I demand we bring that back. Of course, after I tell you this part, you might not want to. Mm, Okay. 
instead of checking the oil, Danny pulled a spark plug wire. Scratch that. Okay. Yeah, thought so. Thought so. Nope. So that the car would just wouldn't sound right and it would run rough. Danny told them, you know what? Go ahead and pull your car into the service bay. I will get this checked out. The girls were apprehensive because they were like later, um, Brent actually talks about this. They seemed apprehensive because they could tell that Danny didn't know what the hell he was talking about. Oh, if they would have just went with their guts. Well, they tried. Oh, they did. Yes, okay. They, they tried. tried. And that is when Danny pulled the knife. Oh. And then Brent does too. How am so, I not supposed to strap a shank to my thigh after right. this? I at think all we, times. we all need to be shanked up. I really, I mean, yep. oh my gosh. All right. Just know on these little chicken sticks that I've got over here. <laughs> She's packing I've some got meat a underneath. knife that might be thicker than my actual like, thigh. I picture you w- walking like you have a peg leg because right. it's like bigger than the, your leg. It's longer than, it's like a bread knife. Yes. <laughs> your standard bread knife and it's still longer than my yes. thigh. <laughs> It's acting like a splint. <laughs> oh, that's Charnel. She's a nice girl, oh, but she walks great. with a limp. That's <laughs> just her bread knife shank. Sweet girl, though. Yeah. Sweet girl. Sweet girl. <laughs> so true. Oh. Mind your own when you see me limping, people. I'm packing. <laughs> oh. Later, when Brent is being interviewed about this, he said, when Danny pulled his knife, that was basically a cue that this is what was going to happen. So to him, he was like, I knew I had to pull my knife as well. Danny drove them around back and forced them into his Corvair van. And at that point, they sexually assault both women. And Danny tells Brent to strangle both of them. I think at this point in time, this is like a test. Is Brent going to do it? Yeah. Is he, you know. Mm -hmm. However, because he's 15... Brent was not strong enough to strangle Claudia Bidstrup. She was first. And so uh, Danny had to help, but he was able to strangle Linda Clark and did so. He says later that he was hesitant, but that he was knee deep into the crime at this point in time and felt like he had to do it. If he didn't, he was next. Oh. So as awful as it is, I mean, also this kid is 15, too. 15. He what a horrible, 15. horrible, like he didn't even have a chance. He didn't. Meeting Danny. No. Like it was over. once Danny was in his life. Maybe uh, without it, Danny. I think once he told Danny about the rape, well, he'd already done prison time. So maybe at that point in time, he could have gotten away from him and been okay. But once we are at this point, it's like, if you're not going to strangle them, then I'm going to have to cut you loose because I am going to strangle them and you're going to know that I strangled them and so you're going to be next. I I do understand it too. So he then Danny bought a gallon of gas and he told Brent to go set the car on fire. Now this is the girl's car. He ended up in a wooded area near Galesburg. So Brent had to drive the vehicle with both of the girls in it, the girl's vehicle, and went to that wooded area near Galesburg East of that's just east of Kalamazoo, doused the vehicle in the gasoline, and he lit a cigarette and put it on the floorboard, thinking that it would catch on fire, and it didn't. Oh my gosh! Yeah, then he had to walk on I ninety four, and he hitchhiked back to. So Kalamazoo. he didn't wait to see if it was going to light on fire. No, he's fifteen. True, if that just true. doesn't go to show how yeah. much he wasn't planning on being a he's murderer. He's not a true cr- criminal. Well, right. he is, but he is. I mean, yeah, but naive he does not and young. know yep, oh. what he's doing. Yeah, no, the cigarette just burnt out and didn't, it didn't actually, start anything. Yep. Wow. So on July 19th, now that happened on July 6th, July 19th, so this is 13 days after their murder, police found Clark, uh, Linda Clark and Claudia Bidstrup's vehicle. They found their bodies and, and the vehicle by some bikers, if I'm recalling my information correctly. I forgot to put it in my notes, but I believe it was some bikers. That, oh, they, that they found the bodies. Find them. Mm-hmm. So now I'm going to take you. So they've got they've got these bodies. They don't know. You know, they, they can clearly see that the vehicle has been doused in gasoline and they see the cigarette. But they don't I don't have anything else at this point in time. On the afternoon of August 6th, 1972, Danny Decided that he he got himself a new van. He decides he wants to drive it around. So he's got Brent with him 
And they're driving around the Western Michigan University campus. No, 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 no. Too close to home. Yes. I'm also terrified to know why he got the van. Like, obviously, there was intention. Oh, yeah. He doesn't need a van. He got rid of his old van because, I'm sure, because he had committed two murders in it already. Right, right. Well, three, actually. Excuse me. Three murders. And so they're driving around. Now you've got to know it's 1972. Students are hitchhiking. It's what they it did. It was a thing. So on this day, 18-year-old Western Michigan University student Pamela Fearnow got a ride. Actually, Danny tried to pick up another girl, and Brent shook her shook his head no because he didn't want any part. He realized, oh my God, he wants to do this again. And so he wasn't going to give him the cue. He's just like, he shook his head, no, like, nope, nope, not her, hoping that they wouldn't find anybody else. Well, then he tried to shake his head no to Pamela as well, but Danny didn't care. He picked her up anyway. So they pick her up. And I will say, I found it in different sources. One said August 5th and one said August 6th. So I'm not entirely sure, but I want to just, for accuracy's sake, I want to throw that out there that it could have been the 5th as well. So they pick her up. At this point in time, Brent says he was fearful of Danny. All Pamela Fear now wanted was a ride to a nearby shopping center. So once they get there, he pulls out a knife and lets Pamela know basically, you know, we're going to rape you. If you, he's saying things like, if you stay still, all this stuff, like we won't kill you, like trying to really lie and say that everything's going to be okay when it's not. They drove around to the Comstock Township area, raped her again. A little while later, they went into a store. They bought some alcohol and returned. Now, this is, I want to jump to, I'll get to the details later, but at this point in time in the story, later on in life, when Brent is talking to the parole board about Pamela's death, he's telling the story because that's something that they make you do when you're eligible for parole. And so he says, we all drank something and had sex again. And the parole board member steps up and says, you mean raped? Thank you. And he said, raped, excuse me. That to me right there shows that he was not taking accountability. Yeah, absolutely. He is still calling it sex. This girl wanted nothing to do with them. You forced yourself on to her multiple times before murdering her. And you're going to stand in front of the parole board and say, we all drank something and then we had sex. No. And just that warped mindset of like, that it was normal. Yes. Like, oh, we had sex. Not a big deal. Women love this. Wow. Fucking pisses me off. I'm so glad that that person on the yeah, parole board in, said, was like, bitch, rape. no. Yep, yep, exactly. That was not sex. Yeah. I just wanted to include that now while it's all making sense. But unfortunately, yes, they, they take her around this area. They're driving this van around, and they rape her on multiple occasions. Uh, I I went to Western. I know. That's crazy. I didn't graduate from there. I went somewhere else, but I, that's great. That's close to home for yes, me. Most definitely. Brent believes that he was the one that bound Pamela. Okay. So, he, so Brent ties her arms and then he put a garbage bag over her head and a rope around the bag and she slowly suffocated while Danny watched. Brent says that he did not watch. He exited, exited the van at this point in time. But who's to say, I mean, that's his word against, you know, Pamela's not here to dispute that. So they ended up dumping her body in a wooded area near Mar- Morrow Lake in Comstock Township. At this point in time, go ahead, were you going to say something? I was. I didn't want to cut you off, though. I just, I'm, I'm not excusing anything for Brent, but it makes me sad to know he came from a home, obviously, where he didn't, you know, have any type of know how to set healthy boundaries no. basically and it makes me sad that he got himself into the situation where he truly probably felt like he had to do this like he didn't have the skills to be like ah there's a better life or there's For I sure. can say no I can get out of this and he like you can tell he's disturbed but yes. he feels like he's now in too deep and has to do this right or he's going to die and, and it's he just probably a shame. would have he probably would have something i'll tell you in a minute you'll will confirm that for you that he absolutely would have if he hadn't went along with it for sure 
The other thing is, I don't know that he, first of all, he wouldn't recognize a healthy relationship because he's right. never seen one right. at 15. He's much more comfortable and connected with Danny, who also came from rough childhood. Yeah, He wouldn't even know how to interact with people who didn't come at this point in time where he was at in his life when he met Danny. He wouldn't have probably even thought he was good enough to hang out with a I mean, this decent is the, yes, crowd this of people. This is the 70s. This isn't like today where we are so much more accepting of people and understanding people's backgrounds and that everyone is different and comes from different places. This was a very judgmental time where there's the very. haves and the have-nots. Yeah, it's just so sad. You know, yeah. it really is. At this point in time, though, after the killing of Pamela, fear now, Brent decides that he is going to go back to school, he's going to move back home, and he uses that as an excuse of like, okay, um, it's been cool, Danny, kind of. Actually, it's been very terrifying, but I'm going to get my life right now. I'm going to finish school and go back and live with my schizophrenic mother because, frankly, Because I'd rather do yes, that. she's safer than you. However, he then probably, again, that need for connectiveness – he bragged to a friend about the killings. Now, I don't know. I shouldn't even use the word brag. It just said in reports that he told friends, a friend, about the killings. All right. Now, I don't know if this was like in a I, I, a confidant, like I need to process, the, process this with someone or if it was more of a I'm a badass. Right. I don't have that information. It could go either way for a 15-year-old. Yeah. The friend told another teen about the killings. And so that particular teen used the information as a bargaining chip with police when he himself got into trouble. Oh, God. Like, I know who killed. They still, Pamela had been reported missing, but they had not found her body. Oh, I see. And they had the other two bodies with no connection. Those girls were from Chicago. So they had no idea who, you know, who could have possibly murdered them. So this teen is like, oh, you want to get me for whatever it was? I got some information for you. Well, at this time, police set up sur a surveillance trailer across from the gas station of that Danny Rains worked at because they have these bodies. They have this tip from this teenager, and they know that he was just out of prison for raping a woman in Wyoming. And they discover, this is unbeknownst to Brent, but... Through their surveillance, bleh, through their surveillance, they figure out Danny Rains tried to hire a hitman to kill Brent after Brent moved back home to go back to school and cut off ties. Oh my gosh! Because he was a loose end, right? So it did not work. He was not able to carry out that hit. And on September fifth, nineteen seventy-two, Danny Rains and Brent Coster were arrested and each charged with two counts of murder for killing Linda Clark and Claudia Bidstrup. They don't have Pamela's body, and they don't they never have... never found it? Or, oh, you mean at this time? At this like, time, okay. yep. They no. don't have Pamela's Pamela Fearnow's body. And at this point in time, they don't know that Danny is connected to Patricia Hawks. Hawks, excuse me. It's H-O-W-K-S. It is probably Hawks. Like Hawks. Hawks, yeah. Okay. They don't have that connection yet for her murder. So they're just arrested for the murder of Linda Clark and Claudia Bidstrup. Brent initially denied everything until his attorney told him, listen, if you flip and will testify against Danny and you admit your part and offer details, you'd be allowed to plea to second-degree murder, like one for second-degree murder and one for homicide. Because remember, he wasn't strong enough to actually strangle uh, Claudia. Girl, yes, I he do. He did strangle Linda, though. And he lawyer explained that this would be a reduced sentence. And he would also have to lead the police to the body of Pamela Fearnow, which he did do that on October 18th, 1972. At this point in time, her body was only skeletal remains, but her family did get to have her body back. Right. So then on March in March of 1973, Danny Rains was found guilty. They they did a separate trial for everything and he Danny pled 
not guilty to everything. Of okay. course he did. So Danny Rains was found guilty in March 1973 for Patricia Hoke's murder because Brent gave those details and they were able to connect, you know, connect the timeline and everything. So they wouldn't have known about Patricia Hoke if, and Danny killing her. If Brent hadn't. If Brent hadn't oh, flipped wow. and actually told them. And so that, there is like some closure there, you know, for her family. So she was, he first was found guilty of her murder. And then in July, uh, July 21st, 1973, Danny was then found guilty for Pamela Fearnow's murder. And again, Brent testified against him at the trial. Danny Rains was sentenced to two life sentences without the possibility of parole. June 11th, 1975, Brent, who is now 18, pled guilty to one count of second-degree murder for Linda Clark's killing. Brent was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. And we'll get to that. At the time, the judge had this to say to Brent, the crimes that you and Mr. Raines are guilty of are the type of crime that justifies, in my opinion, consideration of reestablishing the death penalty. Dang, judge yeah. isn't playing around. Mm-mm. And this was, he's since been, he has passed away now, but it was uh, Judge McCauley carried on to say, what my personal beliefs are is immaterial. But I do feel, Mr. Coster, that you should never be released back into free society. Hmm. So really laying down the hammer there. Now, this was in the 70s, this right? Was in the, this was 1975 mm-hmm, that he finally gets, you know, I'm, excuse me, yeah, 1975. It was 1973 before or when Danny was found guilty for the crimes, but it was 75 for Brent. And I don't know if that's because they were waiting until he was an adult. Oh, yeah. Because at that point in time, then he's 18. Yeah. Brent did not file any appeals from 1975 until 1992. He was serving his time, and he was also becoming a paralegal in prison. Really? hmm And he actually got a job within the prison legal services, and that's what he did the whole time in prison is he offered, he was a paralegal, and he offered legal services to prisoners. Wow. He did a lot of the work himself for his appeal from in 1992. Of course, the appeals were rejected. In 2002, he actually filed a 159-page document in the U.S. District Court in Detroit after all of his state appeals were rejected and he was out of appeals. But he argued that the sentencing judge essentially negated any benefit of the plea deal by handing down a life sentence. Because remember, he did like testify against Danny. He did. And he did lead them to the body of Pam, Pamela Firno. Which, when you enter a plea deal, though, there's no guaranteeing that the the sentence that the judge, the judge is going to agree with the sentence that you're pleading to. He didn't win. He tried. Appeal, but, but yeah, he tried. Yeah. His attorney said in court records that the judge made the sentence known during an in-chambers meeting. Like he told, Coster's attorney knew that the sentence the judge was giving was not going to be, you're released after so many years. It was going to be life with the possibility of parole. But they can, s- <clears throat> sorry, that was deep. Um, they could still deny it. Is the yeah, kicker. Yeah, well, what the so what the court records are showing is, like, the judge wasn't being secretive about anything. Coster's attorney knew what the sentence was yeah. that the judge was going to be. And so, basically, Coster, in 2002, when he filed his, his appeal with the Supreme Court, was like, my attorney did not tell me that the judge was not going to accept the, the sentencing that we, you know, we were hoping for. So the other thing that he said, and I mean, I guess I do kind of agree with this part, is that his attorney failed to raise the psychological dynamics that led a vulnerable 15-year-old kid to become involved with a seasoned adult, a, a convict, almost twice his age, a relationship that resulted in horrific crimes. I don't I, disagree with that. I know. I see this in a course... Of course, in 1973, that's not going to happen. In 2002, these things are more realized right. now. At least there's more awareness of, like, mm-hmm. not saying that it's okay, no. but, like, at least there's awareness of how this happened. And it's a shame because look at what he did in prison. Look at his potential if he would have just met the right and stinking I'll, people. Right. I will say this, too. He was a model prisoner. There were never any issues in prison. 
1998, he was able to get a psychological evaluation that was requested by his attorney and his family. And in this evaluation, they addressed the dynamics that led to the crimes and to determine his likelihood of reoffending. All right. So William, Dr. William D. Brooks said that Brent Coster was fearful and nervous after the killings, but had no desire to hurt women. He said that Brent Coster seemed to have a limited idea of the experience of the victims and a diminished little empathy in describing the victims as nervous and apprehensive. So he's like, he couldn't even describe, he couldn't even empathize with what the victims were like going through at that time. Uh, In the psychological evaluation, Brent described himself as a loner. He had no real ties at home or at school. And he found in Danny Rain's perhaps the most substantial relationship of his young life. Mr. Coster unfortunately bonded with Danny Rains and became, at the onset, an unsuspecting accomplice with an individual who had already committed murder by himself, which I do think that that is important. Danny was capable of murder by himself. He did. At the important injuncture of deciding to splinter off from his association with Danny Rains. When it became apparent that he was going to participate in rape and murder, Mr. Coster failed to separate. True. True. Very true. Yep. At that point in time, Brent Coster had a history of property crimes, and he should have received treatment as a juvenile both before and after the killings, but he never did. And the psychological evaluation did determine that Coster is unlikely to act out violently in the future. That's what the doctor said. And in his evaluation, it acknowledges that, you know, when he's doing this evaluation, it was paid for by his attorney, not his attorney, excuse me, but it was requested by his attorney and it was paid for by his family. So the doctor did even acknowledge that in his report. Like, I realize that I am doing this service for this prisoner. (laughs) Right, right. But he was struck by his straightforwardness and honesty and sincerity and sincerity and the profound impact that incarceration has had on him thus far so that was 1998 up until recently through all of this his parole has been denied then the victims families received notice on November 10th 2020 that at his next parole hearing on January 21st 2021 at the age of 64, Brent Coster would be released after serving 48 years in prison. Wow. Is it even, I don't know, is it even worth being released at that point when you spent most of your life in prison? 64. He, uh, as we'll get to in a minute, um, some of the, I don't want to say supporters, it's just people that he met in prison who helped him along the way, do feel that he has the ability to serve as like a paralegal. Oh, outside of okay. prison. That had to have been hard for the families Absolutely. when he got released. Well, um, I'll, I'll give you, I have pieces from them. I have quotes from them. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So at his parole hearing where he, on that January 21st hearing, 2021, where he was released, um, he said, quote, I deserve to spend the rest of my time in prison. There's no doubt about that. But I would like to be given the opportunity to serve the rest of my remaining days in a free community rather than die in prison. I realize what I did. I realize that it is horribly wrong, but there are circumstances that got me involved in this. And one of them is, I mean, I know it's rare to blame the co-defendant, but I was, well, shall we say, under the influence. Then he says, not, I know what I did. I accept responsibility for that. But it was not for. But if it were not for my co-defendant, I would not be sitting here. So it's like he's taking responsibility. He does. I do commend also, him for that. I think has self awareness to know. I don't feel like he was per, like blaming. Like, I, and some people might disagree with this. But at first, when I first read that, I was like, "Oh, way to go! You're blaming Danny for all your woes." I actually think it's more of a self reflection of understanding how he got himself wrapped up into Danny, probably after some counseling and things like that, and realizing how impressionable he was at that age, how much he wanted to impress him, and then it got too deep, and then he got fearful, and he did peace out. 
I mean, and and he could have lost his life. Danny did try to get a hit out on him. Yeah, he was supposed to lose his life. Yep, because he, you know, escaped. Yeah. I, s- I, I see this more as a self-reflection of, like, I know I shouldn't be blaming my co-defendant, and that's not what I'm doing here. But if it were not for him, I wouldn't be here. Yep, that's that's kind of what I got out of it, too. It's yeah. like he's, he knows what he did was wrong, but mm-hmm. I think he he wasn't, like, fully pointing the finger, but, like, if it wasn't for this you right. know, person, I, right. I know I wouldn't have done this. Yep. Yeah. yeah, it's hard. It's hard because he's 15. He yep. was 15. It is. If we're talking about an adult that, you know, full brain development, all of these things, I would have less empathy. The kid things, they I struggle with these. You're literally, your brain is not fully developed. So let me put this into perspective for you. How useful would you be with your right hand or your left hand, if you're left-handed? I don't want to discriminate, my dear left-handed friend. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) How useful would you be with that if your hand wasn't fully developed? Tell me how you could write. Tell me how you could do things. It would be difficult, right? What if you had to wait until you were 25 years old for that hand to fully developed? You'd be remarkably better at using it after it's fully developed, right? Our brain is no su- I picture exception. Picture me having a little tiny hand. Me too. That's what I was picturing little ba- too. Little baby hand. It's still growing. Little T Rex <laughs> thing going on. I'm like, I can't. I can't <laughs> do anything with that. Right. So, uh, is that a fair? That's you know, a good. I'm, yeah. I'm trying to like put it into comparison for people. So I hope everyone is envisioning like me with a tiny, tiny hand very. on my right. My right hand is like a little baby. Right. And, and it's like just not fully there yet. Yeah. So you're not masturbating with it. You're not <laughs> doing things that you'd like to do with it until it's fully developed. Yep, that's <laughs> that's correct. Okay, fair enough. So that's why I struggle with stuff like this when we are talking about underdeveloped brains mixed with horrible early childhood experiences. This, you know, this one's hard. I feel that 48 years of his life is is a debt paid to society, but I'm not one of the victim's families. Right. I can absolutely see how every one of these victims' families want to see that man die in prison, want to see him not be free. And as a matter of fact, the family, I do have some quotes from the family of Claudia Bidstrup, who was only 19 when her life was taken, and she was from Chicago. They were on their way. I may have said at the beginning, I'm sorry if I said they were on their way to Chicago. They were from Chicago. They were on their way to Ann Arbor to visit a friend. Her and Linda were. Claudia's parents, Marilyn and Richard, were never the same after her murder. What's worse is that like Marilyn was a really devoted mom, and her dad was a cop in Chicago. So her dad is literally a protector of the Chicago people. And his own daughter ends up murdered. This was very difficult for them to wrap their head around. She had brothers, Bill and Ron Bidstrup. They still are hurting. They still struggle to find words. They said that their mother did not have a day of peace after Claudia's murder. And for 25 years, their mom would observe mass and have a luncheon on Claudia's birthday. One of, oh, Ron's wife. So this would, would have been... Her name is Cynthia. This would have been Claudia's sister-in-law said that they've got these old, you know, family photos and whatnot. And she said she was always told of what a beautiful heart Cynthia had. And Marilyn Bidstrup died about three years ago. But her family took comfort in, she lived a long life, but they took comfort in the fact that she was reunited with Claudia, which is all she'd ever really wanted. So she also, for one of the articles, it was an MLive article, I think, that I was reading, she wrote them and said, one more thing, could you please add that Claudia's brothers will never stop missing her or wishing that she was still here? Oh, that's just so heartbreaking. So for them, I see why they don't want him. They do not want Brett Coster back on the streets. Uh, I get it. I would not want to be on that parole board because it's like you see every aspect of it like you can see where the 48 years is enough yeah but then look at what it did to this family to have their their loved one taken away right now pamela fear now she had a younger sister her name's betty shamel her last name's shamel now 
Um, remember, Pamela was only 18 when her life was taken. She, her emotions are a little bit different. She said that they've kind of been all over the place over the years. She does recognize that Brent helped the police find her sister's remains. And she wondered if he was ever going to get to a place where he got out. In the MLive article, she actually said, I don't blame him so much. She said he wasn't smart enough or secure enough in his own life to fight the demon off. Danny Rains was a wicked, evil man. So she has a little bit of a different take of like recognizing what we were saying earlier. Yeah, she's like, I kind of get it. Now, I will say some of the police officers that were on this case, they knew of Larry Rains, Danny's brother, Monk Steppenwolf. Oh, yeah. They were involved in taking him down for his killing spree. One of the people that he killed was like for $3. He killed oh someone over $3. Gosh. Like I said, I will cover that case. I am going to hold you to it. But these police officers, when they find out that, like, they weren't surprised that Danny, you know, is involved in this, but they're apprehensive, apprehensive about Brent Coster being released because they know who he was associated with and they remembered taking down Larry even. Yeah. So I, yeah. you know, I get that. And they feel that on the night when Brent, told them everything that happened, he didn't show a hint of remorse. And that was really chilling to them. Sometimes I struggle with these things. I don't know. Everyone kind of reacts differently. How did you want him to react in 1972 when he's telling you about all these murders that he took part in that he didn't want to you know I just right. I don't know I can see how it'd be easy to like read into like oh he wasn't crying so there's no remorse you know now I don't know what the outcome of Brent is yet so maybe I'm jump, jumping the gun but I can tell you after working with people that try to rehabilitate into society after prison it's no it's no freedom I yeah, mean people struggle and it, I mean depending on where you're at not a ton of resources to help with that. That's not a total reward getting right. back out right. and having, I mean, especially being in there that long. Uh-huh. That's just my thought. Essentially his whole life. Yeah. Like 48 years. You had 48 years and then your foundation wasn't solid. Right. To begin with. Right. Like, I'm just saying that's not a picnic. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you that. Yep. The police officer who retired in 2004, who had spent 35 years as you know, on the force and whatnot. He actually did say that these killings really did bother him a lot and kind of like stuck with him over the years. And so that's another reason why he's just like, I, I uh, get yeah. that. They, they were brutal. I mean, the murders were horrible. I, I get that. Now M live did reach out to Brent Coster for an interview and he did deny the request for an actual interview, but in his parole hearing, he did say, like, he kind of accepted the impacts of the crimes on the families, and he said, it must have been horrible. I know that I can't even begin to realize the pain and suffering that they went through. The only thing that I can compare it to is when I lost my father and mother and the pain and hurt that I went through, but I can imagine that it would be nowhere compared to the families, compared to what the families went through. Over the years, I've talked to a couple people who have lost a child, and they said that there's no greater pain than the loss of a child. It's like he wants to empathize with the family, but he's recognizing that he has no idea. He can't fully. He really won't fully comprehend it, and I do appreciate that he's not insincere in saying, oh, I do understand. Yeah, I mean, that's not like our typical people that Mm -hmm. we see that don't hold themselves accountable like there's some empathy there yep i agree yeah also if this helps you at all he did suffer colon cancer in prison oh so that could always kill him too oh yeah sandra gerard now she was his supervisor at the prison legal services for 25 years she supervised him while he was a paralegal for the prison and she said at the parole hearing that he was a highly skilled paralegal because he, he did have people speak on his behalf. She, was, she has known him for 37 of his 48 years being imprisoned. Oh, wow. And she thought that he should be able to find work as a paralegal. He had plenty of experience throughout his prison sentence. And she said it was difficult for him to talk about the killings. He was always extremely ashamed and remorseful for his crimes 
and she noted that if Brent Coster had been convicted of the original first-degree murder charge that he asked for in the plea deal, he would have qualified as a juvenile lifer and been eligible for resentencing. Wow. So she's kind of like, which is something that he did try to appeal in that 2002, you know, court Supreme Court appeal that didn't go anywhere. But she offered to be a support person after he's paroled and said he's a different person now. At 15, of course, we all know that the brain is not fully developed, even until the age of 25. And teenagers are more likely to be rehabilitated or to change than adults who commit crimes. And I fully believe that Brent is rehabilitated and is no threat whatsoever to society. I have so many feelings yeah. right now. Yes. Because it's like, I get that. And she probably knows him better than anybody else at this point. Yeah. But look at what you did, too. Exactly. It's, that's so hard. Yep. Another woman, Jacqueline McKinnon, she retired from the Michigan uh, Supreme Court staff in 2001 and is a volunteer for the prison legal services now. And she actually said there's nothing more horrifying, perhaps, than the crimes that he was convicted of. But he's an adult now. He's not a 15-year-old. I have not seen any evidence whatsoever in the 19 years that I've known him that he is impulsive or a predator or anything but responsible and contrite and remorseful for his crimes. She served on the Michigan Supreme Court. So, okay. But she, right. you know, she did her, she was a volunteer, knew him through the paralegal work. She actually said that she'd welcome him as a neighbor. He's very intelligent and one of the best paralegals. Wow. So it's like there, you know, there is so, it's so rare that we hear these things, that we have like this opposite, these people like, they like see the potential in him. Yes. That he has truly changed. And mm-hmm. no, we don't see that. The Kalamazoo County prosecutor, Jeffrey Getting, at the time when he was released on parole, he said, listen, after reviewing his actions, I share the opinion of this original sentencing judge that was placed on the record. Mr. Coster should never be released from prison. His office did file a notice opposing the parole as he has the right to do. His, the assistant chief prosecutor, Scott Brower, said that a sex offender risk assessment noted that risk factors of either significant concern or some concern is an unacceptable risk to society. So the fact that they did sexually assault these women, not just murder them, right, is a risk to society. I don't disagree. Right. Same. He said Mr. Coster's crimes were horrific and terrifying, his actions were that of a soulless, cold, cold-blooded killer. We can only imagine the sheer terror his victims experience as he toyed with them before killing them. So I see that side of it, too. I do, I too. really, really do. The argument can go both ways here. He was released in and 2021. He's, out, he's still out in he's, society. He's still out in society, possibly living around here. He served his time in Michigan. He's from... I'm sure he's a delightful man. Please don't add us. I, I know. I it's it's hard to say. I yeah. I hope he is doing well. Yes. I hope that he and I'm that's not to discredit the crimes that he did. What I mean is I hope that he's doing well so that he doesn't feel like he needs to reoffend to get back in to the prison atmosphere yeah. that's comfortable for him, like you said before. You know you worry about him rehabilitating after that many yeah, years. Now at least I mean he it sounds like he had some support people. That's huge. Yeah. Like he had people that were willing to stand by him and like help him. So yep. hopefully he is doing well. I hope so. You might be wondering about Danny Rains. I am yes I am these days. I got some updated news on Danny Rains. Please do share. So he served his sentence in the this is gonna chill you. The Lakeland Correctional Facility in Coldwater, Michigan. Nope. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And it was there, Amber, on J- January 29th, 2022, that staff found him unresponsive in his cell at the age of 78, and he was later pronounced dead at the Coldwater Hospital. Wow. So rest in extreme distress, you absolute maggot. Of a yeah. human. So did he, I'm, I'm guessing, I mean, he was 78. Did he 
just natural causes or did he have it didn't even say eh, all right we don't care wow that's crazy hopefully it was just his heart slowly solidifying in his body in a really painful way it turned to stone yes oh my gosh that's so that's just how many times do we drive by that correctional facility not so knowing many. that he and that yeah. was just like a month ago two oh yeah months january ago. 29th yep yep crazy. We're, we're talking six weeks ago he kicked the bucket that's crazy. Yes. So we're, I'm not sad about that. Oh, uh, no. I'm I'm in awe that this is like so close to home. I know. Yes. That is why when we enter or exit parking lots, we check. Scan your the perimeter. perimeter at all times and keep that bread knife shank taped to your thigh, everyone. Heck yes. Oh, my gosh. These oh. are the things that. Also, I, a key. Use Velcro. Don't use actual like tape, electrical tape, because there is nothing worse than trying to get out your shank and you're struggling because you can't secure it too tightly around your body. You raise a valid point. Velcro. Oh, man. Right and the, the waxing potential of a piece of duct tape on your thigh. Yeah. Oh, ouch. No, thanks. Not here for yeah. that. <laughs> Till I have a beach vacation. I don't need that. <laughs> Maybe closer to summer. Yes. And then we'll talk. Right. Are you ready for a brain bath? I am, yes. Okay, I have. Oh, you guys. This was a weird stumble upon, and I even had to put it through Snopes to see if it was real because sometimes when I'm doing research, I happen to click things I shouldn't click because I get a little ADD. Oh, sure. Right? We've been there. Yeah. Yeah. It was. It's a, an extreme rabbit hole maze sometimes. But I click this for the title and then did run it through Snopes to make sure it was real. It is from an old-timey newspaper, okay? But the title, you're going to be like, this is why you clicked on it. Duck eats yeast, quacks, explodes, man loses eye. <laughs> what? Okay, there's Wouldn't no you way. Click? You're clicking, I would. Right? I would not have been able to, like, pass that up. Yeah. Yes. This is Des Moines, Iowa, way back in the day on January 2nd. And I, I can't find the year. I couldn't I couldn't find a picture. I couldn't find the real newspaper like year, but oh let me show you that it's an old tiny oh, it article. Is. It is. So it says Rudimanthus had the strangest incident ever recorded when a duck, which took a prize at the recent Iowa poultry show. My kids are in 4-H. I know. He got so a blue it was a ribbon. prize duck. It was a blue ribbon duck. Yes. Well, he exploded into several hundred pieces, one of which struck Silas Perkins in the eye, destroying his sight. I cannot believe this happened. The cause of the explosion was the eating of yeast, which was placed in a pan upon the back porch and tempted his duck ship. Oh. That's what it says in the article, his duck ship. This poor duck, he just wanted a little snack. The duck was taking a Sunday stroll on the porch. The pan of yeast is sitting there calling to him like a siren in the night. This just makes me sad. Upon returning from church, Mr. Perkins discovered his prized duck in a somewhat loggy condition, I'd say. I'd say he's probably Listen, feeling a little is, bloated. I, this is how I feel after I eat a lot of carbs, too. Right, right. I get it. Very loggy. Me after Mexican. Yeah. Yes. So the, the telltale marks around the pan of yeast gave Mr. Perkins a clue of what was ailing his duck ship. He was about to pick up the bird when the bird quacked and exploded with a loud report. No. And the quack. The quack. Oh, no. It's like burping or farting before you just spontaneously combust. Please don't let this that be the way I go. <laughs> oh, this is just, just so bizarre. Quack. <laughs> Could you imagine? Oh, my gosh. This is crazy. Mr. Perkins ran into the, the house holding his hands over one eye. A surgeon was called who found that the eyeball had been penetrated by a fragment of flying duck and gave no hope of saving the optic. No. Oh, my gosh. He lost his eye from his duck exploding. 
There is no greater story of how did you no lose words. your eye. I, yeah, I have no words. That one wins. And I, be, I bet he's like, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. For ya. sure. Right. A, a man stuck a fork in it, okay? Can yeah. we just, that's just it. go with that. I can't tell you that my blue ribbon prize winning duck ate yeast, quacked, and exploded in my hands. Taking oh, my eyeball with it. He was going to go help the duck, too. He was. Just relieve oh. some of that yeast bloat. Gosh, i never eating yeast again. I'm scared to be around anything that eats bread. <laughs> yes. like, For I'm, sure. I'm maintaining a safe distance. You may explode. Now, was he like... Olive uh, Garden? I'm not going oh, anymore. No, done. That is, so done. Uh, that's a minefield waiting to happen. Was he like gr- like growing the yeast? Or like what was the yeast well, doing? This is old timey. So, you know, that's, was how, that like, that's how you have to make bread back then. Right. Remember? It was like rising or whatever. Yeah. Okay. The duck was like, I'm it's treating myself. Treat. Oh, this is so <laughs> just going right I can up see there. it like nibbling the geese. Yes. Oh, I love ducks too. Yes, me too. Poor guy. At and least he got one last quack. One la- and he was probably trying to tell him he didn't feel good. Yeah. That's probably what that quack was about. Or it was warning him, stand back. Right? I feel like I could explode. How many times have you said that after eating a big meal? Maybe like, it could actually happen. Right. Just be warned, everyone. You heard it here first. You can do, explode. Do keto, you know, something safer. Something safer, for sure. Oh, my gosh. Just lost an eyeball. That's I mean, a- I'm sure in today's standards, they probably could have sta- saved the eye. Maybe, yeah. But I just, I mean. Not in the old-timey days. Not in the old-timey days. And I just, you lost an eye to flying shrapnel of your duck's explosion. What a tragic, bizarre. So bizarre. Story. Yes. <laughs> and Snopes couldn't find that it wasn't real. So I, I damn. I'm here for it. Damn. I, it happened. Explode. From now on, anything, when someone's like, how'd you get that bruise? Exploding duck. <laughs> just, that's my go-to. From this point on. Oh, my gosh. That takes the cake right there. It really... Wasn't that a gem? That's that's better than the Golden Corral brawl, brawl. of 2022. Right, right. I just feel like sometimes... Sometimes when I do some clickbait things and go down the rabbit hole, it leads it. me to a dark place. Other times, exploding ducks. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Sometimes it's worth it. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us today. Keep. We hope you keep listening. We hope you keep it curious. Write us your case suggestions, crimecurious at yahoo.com. If you want more of us, join our Patreon. It helps keep us on the air. We love all of our Patreons. That is crimecuriouspatreon.com. Very reasonable monthly tiers for your extra very, content. Very. If we do say so ourselves, we're kind of cheap. <laughs> we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So until next time, everyone, enjoy your the rest of your day and... Uh, Bye-bye. Bye.